pale horse. The man who sat on him was dead. And hell followed with him. You're killing me, man. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Declarations of War. I'm your host, Alexei Vkar, joined by my co-host, Yin Tan. Howdy, howdy. Artemis is not with us this week, but we do have a very special guest, Tarek Rymo. Hello, good evening, or whatever it is in your time zone. <laughs> Tarek is a very prolific author for Crossing Zebras, and we have him on here to talk about some very cool articles he's written on some of the hottest topics in EVE. Before we get into that, let's do some shout-outs. I want to give a shout-out to Vice and XT, Capitalist Army's newest recruits. We just picked them up over the course of the past week, and I'm very excited. Yin? Yeah, my personal host highlight uh, for... Sorry, not host highlight. We're doing shout-outs, aren't we? Yeah. Is to Jebby and Yamona, who both worked together to organize the Pit 1v1 tournament, and they graciously invited me to come on and do some commentary for it. It was very, very fun. We got to see a triple-tanked Kaldari Navy hookbill uh, win over a very, very well-established solo PvP. It was amazing. And what is the pit? It's a 1v1-focused tournament. So, awesome. You know, uh, it was all the faction frigates going up against each other. So we saw everything from... Um, I think we saw a passive shield regenning uh, Imperial Navy slicers, <laughs> rail-fed Navy comets, things like that. It was brilliant. Great. Tarek, what about you? Yeah, my shout-out goes to the brothers and sisters of Federation Uprising, the Dark Space Initiative, Foxholders, and of course, Villora Chords and all the other Galmilistan people who spread freedom in the north against the salt farmers momentarily, mostly. Awesome. How's that going, by the way? Yeah, it's uh, back and forth. We We have a bit of a time zone issue with them because... Most uh, like half our people are Euro time zone, the other half are American, and usually when we can form a major fleet, they are all in bed already because it seems that a lot of them are Eastern European or Russian. Yeah, that can be interesting, but also can be quite boring. Yeah, what is definitely not boring. The Eve Onion, our sponsor. Much love for the Eve Onion, where they have exclusive stories on the most exciting things. For instance, did you know that CCP may be investing quite heavily in more role-playing properties, potentially converting EVE entirely into Dungeons & Dragons mechanics after Into the Abyss? I was shocked. But you can read all about it on EveOnion.com. EveOnion, we break the news of EVE Online. I'm sure Jin Tan heard that on the CSM Summit. Yeah, and what is the CSM feedback on this shocking story? Uh, just NDA, you know, same as everything else. Just blame everything <laughs> with NDA. NDA. That, that was the whole pre-show, me just saying NDA to random questions. We Speaking of Abyssal Dead Space, uh, we had a question. What is your biggest issue with Abyssal Dead Space? We asked the audience. I was pretty surprised at the results, actually. A whopping no votes for instance PvE, which... Yeah, I, I have to say that one really surprised me as well. That's, like, my biggest thing with it. Yeah, that's definitely the thing I was most concerned about <clears throat> when CCP gave it to us at the end of the day. Um, 
the rewards are always going to be the rewards. You know? They might not be the best ones in the world, but they're, they still play around with the same uh, power structure of the game that we've had forever. It's, you know, just loot. It's just that the loot is more randomized. You can still get officer mods, you know, you can still get, you know, really, really rare dead space drops and dead space sites. You can get faction spawns in your fucking havens. All of that's RNG and it impacts how much money you make. I, I still don't quite see why RNG module buff, buffs are any different. Well, they're apparently different enough that they're the number one reason people are apprehensive about this Into the Abyss expansion. Yeah, CCP's very aware of it. I think that, you know, we've had a lot of discussions with them. Uh, Rise has been very good about coming back to people and kind of turning a lot of the stuff that people are concerned at down, like the um, uh, the level of buffing that you could get on MWDs and on webs that would make them just more powerful than the officer. That's been all kind of packed away, I think, or at least uh, mitigated to some degree. I, sp- I played nice. around with it a bit on CC, and I ran not a lot, but let's say like a, a dozen or two of these random number generator, uh, whatever you want to call it, mu- mutations. And I have to say, there, there only, I only got like two modules that were significantly ba- better than what you would uh, normally buy as anything feasible on the market it's it's not like it generates a lot of super powerful modules and i've heard a lot of folks complain that it's going to distort the price balance around these items but if you think about it like people are still going to buy dead space if for no other reason than to react it with the rng system to get something better so i don't think it's going to completely tank the demand for these high-end modules like people are saying it will uh I think it can depend on what usage, though, because if T2 modules are going to be consistent, well, well, if it's easy to turn a T2 module into something that's consistently as good as a faction one for, you know, significantly less cost, yeah, EVE players are EVE players. They're going to they're gonna maximize that spreadsheet, boy. Yeah, but you have true. absolutely no consistency. So you, you might you, get what are you talking four about? modules you have perfect that are... consistency over time. You just need to react like 10,000 modules. As long as 5,000 of them are, like, better than the average, then that means that you win monetarily, as long as the cost pro- uh, profile works out. And that is what I'm actually really worried about. How how easy is it to put a bot on this? Like, uh, like I have, uh, I buy myself a whole hang- uh, freighter full of uh, Tech 1 modules, really cheap ones, and then react them automatically. That would be quite a terrible thing, I think. Somewhere in Russia... Someone is like moving their hands in a very villainous fashion, chuckling to themselves. Prisming their hands. Yes, indeed. Mr. Burnsing it. I get you, I get you. Scratching their palms. Mm-hmm. Personally I, I would I would be okay with them just giving us like a, a React ten thousand fucking units drop drop down. I feel like it's inevitable we'll get to the point where we're gonna do that anyway. It's like multi fitting. You know, just give us the tools to use it properly. But that's just me. I think it'd be a better experience, but the botting aspect is always a concern when it's too easy. Yeah, 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 definitely. You don't want people to be able to just make free money constantly on these things. What throws me a bit, and uh, that might be a slight uh, niche problem, is... The, the issue that I, I like to fly around and try solo PvP and it's already a bit difficult to uh, gauge 
what kind of uh, fitting somebody could have if you count in all the faction and dead space and officer modules because some people really do crazy fits and of course implants and all of that stuff and uh, after some time you have a bit of a, an idea okay like how realistic is it what kind of speed does that guy have uh, what kind of web range does that guy have etc etc but uh, with those modules it becomes so much more of a hit and miss gamble you really can't know anymore what somebody might have been fitting I think you're you're still going to see the same general things fit though. Like all ships are going to st- still mostly act in the same way. Obviously, we talked yeah. about exceptions with regards to things like um, power grids on hundred MNC hundred uh, MNEVs. You know, the fact that maybe you can have a really really good, really low PG hundred MN, hundred MNAB does something. Stuff like that is where I'd be most concerned about how this interrupts um, solo gameplay styles. If anything, I think it will increase the viability of a lot of small gang stuff just because you have access to more power for cheaper. That's true. I mean, it also works in reverse. Just as much as the other guy uh, is more of a mystery to me, it's the same way around. Like, uh, I might look like somebody with not a big wallet who doesn't have a lot of expensive losses and therefore isn't likely to have super expensive modules fitted, but I might have two or three of those mutated ones that uh, really push my ship above the line. Yeah, yeah, you're I as much of a black a box thing. to your opponent as they are to you. Yeah, I just, I just, I just don't see that that being a negative for for Eve Online. I definitely think less predictability in combat is generally good, but I think the issue comes in when you realize a lot of Eve players are rather risk averse, and it's it's kind of antithetical, but like. You would have folks go up and maybe not take fights because they don't know with confidence what the other person is fit with. To me, that seems like a rather silly way to solo because what are you going to fight in that case? But I don't doubt that there are a significant number of EVE players that would take that approach, and it's a shame. Oh yeah, I'm absolutely sure. And people that you now can maybe still get into a fight might, might not be willing to take it anymore. Well, we'll just have to see. I'm I'm hopeful, though. I'm hopeful. I guess I I still think at that point that it's just a power level question. You just want the modules to not be so brokenly powerful that they change the game in any significant way. They're just slightly better. Like, it's power creep, and power creep fucking sucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. But at a certain point, you just need bigger numbers to motivate people to want to do things. Speaking of bigger numbers, throwing this out there, apparently the Triglavian ships are... Awfully underpowered. Oh, that sucks. That doesn't surprise yeah. me though. Like they're yeah, introducing I'd... a lot of new shit, so they're probably gonna like ease that shit in and then be like, alright, now we now we tune it up because they don't wanna <laughs> I don't think CZB wants to be like, let's drop the Triglavian battleship. By the way, it's like ten times better than every other ship in the game and like ten of them can kill a fax. This is the new <laughs> meta, everyone get in here, boy. Well, I mean, there are some significant trade-offs. It takes a long time, apparently, to ramp up their damage. And I think the disappointing thing, from what I'm hearing from folks who have tested it, is that once you get fully ramped up, the payoff for that time investment is disappointing. Sounds like my life, to be honest. Yeah, right? Sounds like most long-term things I have tried. Jesus fucking Christ. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize this was your fucking 
counselling video, Alexia. <laughs> you okay, bud? I just think back to my childhood and, you know. Jesus. <laughs> oh, let's not go there. <laughs> this is fucking Alexia's high school reunion. No, 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 no. It's not, not time to give me therapy. Let's talk to about Tarek instead. <laughs> let's give Tarek therapy, sure. That yes, ta- let's ask Tarek questions and deflect from my issues. <laughs> yeah, so when I was... Uh... In uh, in my first year of school, what happened on my second day? No, okay, like, what did you want to know? Uh, when you were a child, how often did your parents hug you? <laughs> uh, you you would have to ask my cat because that was the only other creature that was allowed to interact with me. That's interesting. Uh, how did you get started in Eve? Was it the history of abuse and neglect that kind of drove you to the game? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I heard it's a game where you can be like absolutely punished for every slightest mistake, and uh, and my um, ingrained can you masochism. Not, can you not make Eve Online sound like a BDSM experience, please? <laughs> New title for the episode: Abuse and Neglect. <laughs> No, I mean, what what got me started in EVE was uh, was an article in, um, I don't even remember where anymore, but it was about the heist of Guiding Hand Social Club. And I'm, uh, I have a background in social science, and I, every once in a while I checked out things about MMOs because I was interested in the social dynamics, and then I read that, and I thought, oh my god, what kind of game is that where things like that are possible? So that got me involved in trying it out it was like i ended up trying it out somewhere in uh on the turn around 2007 2008 and um yeah at at first i was i was kind of like dumbfounded with it i had absolutely no idea what's going on there and uh where where does all that stuff happen that i read about until um yeah, in a in a very long and complicated story, I did get quite interestingly involved in all that. Uh, I have had a career as a sort of like professional spy for hire in Eve for about four years of my game time. After the first one and a half years, where where I was basically just traipsing around. And um, if somebody is more interested about hearing what that all entails, and there is an article on Crossing Zebras that I wrote about that, and there is also a YouTube video floating out around out there about a presentation I did at Amsterdam on exactly that subject. So we don't need to... Which I went and watched. It was really good, dude. I can absolutely recommend that people go and hunt this thing down. Yeah, if you, if you have a link, let's, let's put it in the show notes. Yeah, um, I will try to uh, suss it out where where it is. I, I guess I can find it on YouTube. The the funny thing is, um, last year's Easterdam, a recruiter from a smaller Imperium alliance said that they are using that video as training material for their counterintelligence agency. They, uh, they say, uh, watch this so you know how spies work and how to spot them. Wow. Yeah, I got to watch this thing. Uh, I imagine a lot of your spying activity you probably can't discuss, but do you want to like give a highlight? What was the coolest thing that you pulled off that you can talk about publicly? Um. Yeah. Well. Okay. What What would be the coolest thing? I. 
I mean, the, one of the things that I pulled off, which I liked the most because it was so uh, incredibly smooth and um, and cost a lot of ISK and basically led to the breakdown of one week of ship replacement program was uh, that I had... Uh, one of the things that I got into was jump freighter logistics and while working as an infiltrator. And I set myself up um, to be ganked by a third party that was also working as a proxy for the actual opponent in the war. So everything was really cloak and dagger there, like a, like a, a complete deniability kind of thing. And uh, yeah, and so I set myself up to be ganked with this jump freighter that was basically the last straw for a, an already really stressed ship replacement program. And because that broke down for a few days, people didn't go to fleets, people were getting a bit uh, dissatisfied with the whole war, how it was going, morale break broke down, fleet participations broke down, and then uh, a really strategic system was lost. Wow. Uh, for the people who want to uh, who want to dig for clues in what I said there, that was something that happened uh, back in the days when uh, the old southern, not the, the really old southern coalition, but the southern coalition, which was uh, which involved Triple A, was fighting against Test Alliance and goons in the south. Yeah, I remember that one. Oh, I miss Triple A. Just generally, they were good fun. <laughs> they were fun. I have no strong opinions one way or the other on AAA. I mean, as we all know, AAA is shit, but they were one of the best shits on the game. They were fun to fight occasionally, I guess. I liked it in that they... they were. I don't know if they were fun to fight, because most of the time I was fighting with them or not involved in the conflict at all. But, from my opinion, they were like an alliance that did things... Like a content creator that had a distinct identity and cultural history, and you're just like almost like Try is now, you know, or like Razor used to be. When was that? Razor used to be good. I used to be in Razor. I I hate people shit talking Razor. Razor used to be like vaguely competent for a couple of a hot minute. Razor has not been competent since I started playing the game. Hey, they, they evicted IRC. And at that time, Mercenary Coalition would didn't exist. Therefore, at that point in time, Razor were better than Mercenary Coalition. You can't argue with this logic. <laughs> <laughs> Armus isn't even here to defend himself. <laughs> like, yeah, they're... seriously, the Razor... Interesting in that, like, everyone kind of knew who they were, but, like, for Christ's sake. Razor died when 4S left, like, real talk. Yes. Even before that, they were not really a big military powerhouse. Like, when the North got invaded, they didn't do jack shit. Got folded by M, for Christ's sake. What do you mean in the. when. uh, back when um, the goons were kicked out of the North? No, way before that, before goons were even a thing. Ah, okay. Back in those days. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they got rolled by, like, Bob's (laughs) C-Team. Bob's (laughs) C-Team. You're kidding. 
Yeah, but like just like Triple A, they were they were quite active in uh, pulling people in, trying to do PvP, whether they were good at it or not, or whether they were good at politics or not. They got kicked uh, kicked down and got up and got back into the fight and got kicked down and got up and got back into the fight, just like Triple A. I th- I think, in my opinion, they really lost their. Um, I don't know their zest when when they started when they joined the Imperium or CFC as it was uh, called back then and uh, and became sort of like just sitting up in their corner being complacent like everyone else in that coalition. Well, they were really good at politics. They made whatever kind of political decisions led them to continue to hold uh, Tinal. That was like their their major accomplishment. So. I mean, in that sense, yeah. I don't really recall them fighting all that much, a little bit, to retake the North when uh, Bob and MC withdrew their support from the C-team. But even that was probably harder than it really should have been, given the size of the alliances involved. And, uh, yeah, I don't really recall them being too active in many fights since then, but politically, they were always able to make the deal, always able to join the right coalition that enabled them to keep what was essentially their ancestral homeland. And so in that sense, they were pretty skilled. Anyway, uh, what is your primary gameplay right now? Uh, you touched on faction warfare. Is that your main focus? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, like after I quit my spy career, which uh, I did because, first of all, it was eating a lot of time and also eating into my mind and into my brain. It's kind of like really did my head in. Um, I stopped playing at all. For some time and then I came back and one of the things that I knew for sure is I didn't want to go back to solve Nullsec and well, I thought like okay let's check out this Losec place and first I ended up with a really small gang high powered group that was like just throwing tech 3s and uh, other expensive ships around to bash uh, much larger fleets which was good fun but they were in a time zone where I couldn't like really participate much so I ended up in uh, Galente militia and have been since then like it's coming up to four or five years now wow very cool uh how did you get into writing for crossing zebras that's how i sort of came to know you and i think a lot of our audience will know you oh yeah i guess so um yeah that was that was a funny story because uh that was back in the in the day when uh some people scratched out Zinuria's name on the Eve monument in Reykjavik. And there was generally always a lot of uh, anti-Zinuria sentiments going around. And he was also, I think at that time, uh, yet again, a candidate for the CSM elections. And I wanted to do a serious interview with him. I wanted to know, okay, so what's, what's, what's it about this guy? And what is his story? And why might people hate him so much? So I did that interview and I uh, went to Evenews24 to have them publish it. And they said, uh, no, we don't want to publish that because I think it will just uh, attract too much hostility and too many trolls. So I was a bit surprised that Evenews24 would say that because they get trolls and hostility every day. And my friend Naiden, who I knew from... uh, the faction warfare militia, he was at that point working for Crossing Zebras, and he said, you know, we, we will publish your article. Uh, when Evenews24 heard that, they immediately published the article, 
Um, but I did end up switching sides to Crossing Zebras because I really liked their attitude. I talked with Xandafina, uh, who was still running the show back then, and uh, he was working as an editor. And my first article that I submitted, he edited it to pieces, and I really appreciated that, and I stayed. Awesome. Well, Zanuria is a very interesting figure. I don't know if you want to touch on that, but... Yeah, I still can't believe he got elected. I can even less believe that he did a, apparently a really good job as a CSM rep, but uh, oh, yeah. certainly thankful apparently that he did. He did so, yeah. And in all honesty, uh, I have talked with him uh, on repeated occasions, and he can be difficult, but... In all honesty, I really like the guy, and he is quite an okay guy as far as I'm concerned. And over the years, I, I keep meeting him at FanFest. He has also changed a lot. He, uh, he really, um, as he said, has improved his personality. <laughs> what was your sense of like the origin of the backlash against him? Uh, he is just, or was, he became a lot better at that. He, he just was extremely... Um, socially awkward in a way that that really really gets you in trouble. Uh, he just had uh, an uncanny talent for rubbing people the wrong way and not realizing it. And when they reacted to him in a in a standoffish way, he just wouldn't let it go, and that got him into a lot of trouble. I, in fact, uh, when after I did the interview with him. I had quite an issue with him for some time because he kept following me around and uh, and he he was like some little puppy dog that you give a treat on the street and it wouldn't leave you alone anymore. And uh, and I had to at some point talk to him and talk some sense into him and say like, hey man, we we are we're not like well uh, joined at the hip now that I once talked to you. Um, and if I would have been another person who reacts more allergically to this, I would have been like really pissed off at the guy and uh, and probably. Uh, told him all kinds of things. I've heard a few stories of uh, Zaneria and Test that gave me pause, but I also, you know, I have no way of knowing if those are actually true. Like certain things that he did with their their server and some of the media that he shared there. Yeah, I heard all kinds of uh, dirty rumors about that too, but I also don't know and. I would be personally surprised if he really did um, some of the things that he was accused of, if somebody wouldn't have uh, pointed the law at him. Yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, given the controversy that surrounds him, I'm sure a lot of the stuff that people have said about him is not true. It's just kind of the way those things go. Uh, so we wanted to talk about some of the other articles that you've written recently. Um, I think the most relevant of which is The Flight of Seagull. You did a extremely thoughtful, touching write-up of Seagull's tenure, uh, but also a, a fair piece where you talk a little bit about her legacy and the fact that Eve's subs are going down. and We kind of have to make sense of how it seems like she did all the right things, but Eve still isn't going in the right direction financially. Yeah, it appears to be the case. And in, yeah, in fact, I wanted that piece to to have this uh, these two aspects in there. I still caught a lot of criticism, uh, one most vocally issued uh, by uh, Ripper Tag, that I was giving her too much credit and that she really didn't do all that much great stuff. 
but I'm, I'm personally still sitting on the fence. All the stuff that Reaper takes that really uh, he has a point. There, there were a few things where where she basically inherited um, Eve on an upswing already from John Lander, and his argument was that she maybe. Um, didn't do that much to to keep it on that uh, upward trajectory. Although I, I am still sitting on the fence whether it really had that much of an upward trajectory at that point. It did not. <laughs> That's like oh, I don't have a very high opinion of Ripard's uh, opinions, but that one is particularly dumb. Well, uh, it's I I would hope that it is at this point well known. That Eve was in a fairly rocky place when Lander left. This was like, uh, I mean, this is like, <laughs> if you think about it contextually in history, this is after uh, PI had just been launched, which was like an expansion with really no other features other than our pretty shitty PI system, and it never got buffed. This was during Dominion Sov, which was just absolutely crushing people in terms of morale and was leading to ridiculous super cap proliferation since there were bugs with it that didn't get fixed for like a year. Uh, this was Dust about to launch. This was Monocles and Microtransactions about to launch. All this stuff was underway as he was exiting. This was like leading into one of the darkest times in EVE history. So no, that is just absolutely it's not, baseless. It's not entirely correct. The the Incarna microtransaction monocle gates bullshit that did happen on his watch, but that did not happen just before he left. The last expansion that was still while he was executive producer was Retribution. And um, Retribution was where they really steered the ship away from the cliffs. And if you do look at the numbers, then at that point, uh, things stabilized after the great debacle. And in, the, in that much, in that respect, um, Report Tag does have a point because it, it was still John Lander, although at that point, Seagull was already senior producer. So she was also co-responsible for, for that change. So it wasn't John Lander magically waved his wand and made all the problems go away. He had a staff, of course, as well. Just as Seagull did, she also is not single-handedly responsible for all the cool things and nothing of the bad things are yeah, ever of course. But I, I'm just saying that like, from having been in the room during some of these conversations, a lot of the things that were known as some of the most shittiest parts of Eve's history and bad decisions CCP has made were either happening or about to happen. You know, while John was around, I don't think any of them were his fault necessarily. I think he had to... I think there were some bad decisions made above him that he had to make the best out of. That's the vibe that I got. But, you know, to to say that he was, like, somehow responsible for this incredible upswing in Eve and that she didn't do anything, just kind of ran on his coattails... I wouldn't agree with that at all. And as you mentioned, she was involved at a very senior level and when things started did start to turn around. So, you know, I don't know how involved, but, you know, she was in the picture for sure. And a lot of this is out of any Eve EP's control. They are extremely influential people that make a lot of very important decisions, but they don't totally run everything. You know, CCP's executive office still 
makes a lot of business decisions that they then have to then go execute. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's absolutely the case. And uh, in some of the criticism that came back on the article, people also said, yeah, but it was Seagull who implemented free-to-play and skill transactions and uh, drove forward the monetization of the game, where I am pretty convinced that it, that was not her decision because that's outside of the... Um, of the scope of what uh, I think the executor, executive producer of the game is supposed to do. They have to implement it if somebody comes with that decision, but uh, it's not their idea to bring a higher monetization into the game. I doubt that. Yeah, and, and as far as the implementation, I would say the implementation of those two things is actually pretty good. Uh, the skill aspect of it, yes, it's monetizing the game, but that can be a good thing sometimes. I think it's a much more efficient way to do something that the Eve player base was already trying to do with the character bazaar anyway. It's just now it's a lot easier and safer and probably also makes CCP more money, which is good for everyone involved. As for free to play, I'm not I wasn't thrilled with it. Less thrilled with it over time, but as far as like how the community has embraced alphas generally speaking, I I would say that she probably handled that as well as could be expected, considering there was almost no backlash to alpha clones. Yeah, which, uh, in all honesty, really surprised me. But, uh, yeah. It could have been Burn Jita too. Or, not Burn Jita, but, like, the Jita riots, too. Easily. But it wasn't. Because I, I would argue because of how they rolled it out and because the the details they made in the execution stage and the level of consultation they did with the community and the CSM leading into it. Potentially, yes. I mean, uh, Jintan, were you already on the CSM when that whole thing happened? Um, yeah, yeah, I was only in well after CCP Seagull had taken control of CCP. No, I mean when I the mean, alphas were introduced. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was a big part of that. And the, um, you know, we kind of had to talk to CCP a lot about the precautions that needed to be taken. I don't know if you remember the article I put up on CZ at the time called Safety's Off, Gloves Off, because there was a lot of concern about... Um, Alphas being used en masse to suicide gank. That was a really, really big issue in the community. And I kind of made the argument that alphas should be able to suicide gank. It just, um, the main problem and the main problem that was being caused by alphas in general was the idea that you'd be able to have one alongside your Omega account. And thankfully that, you know, we, we managed to get that kind of initial provision taken out of it. Yeah, that was we huge. Have the current alpha restrictions, yeah. So, the, you know, CCP, are slightly more, are a lot more receptive in the modern era, and have been under Seagull to big concerns like that. I feel like if this, you know, if that had happened in two thousand and seven, it, it would you would have gotten, you know, uh, one Omega and one Alpha, and that would have been it. There would have been no discussion on the matter. That uh, would have been absolutely awful. I wholly agree with you. That was one of the hugest concerns, and I'm really glad they addressed it. Yeah, myself uh, as well. You were also on the CSM uh, two times, Alex. Yeah, but this is the pre-Seagull era. I mostly dealt with John, although Seagull was introduced to us at the end of uh, 7, I think. But uh, as like Jintan says, if something like that would have happened in 2007, it would have been different. Like Looking back at your era in interaction with CCP, do you think that's uh, a valid statement? Uh, I think during CSM7's time, things began to change. I honestly don't know how how it would have gone. Um, I think it might depend on which point of CSM7 
that uh, that question came in, if it was sort of at the beginning, probably would not have been consulted well or would have been great communication. Toward the back half, after we sort of got more involved in the development process, I would like to think that they took our concerns very seriously. CSM4, I doubt it. <laughs> uh, CSM4 was, uh, you know, during the early days of the CSM, it was really hard to get like meaningful results. The biggest contribution CSM4 made really was getting improvements to the CSM process and sort of convincing CCP that the CSM could have evolved to be more than it was. Other, like as it was, it just wasn't a lot that got done other than the summits. And the summits, you can only make so much progress in two or three days. Outside of the summits, there really wasn't a lot of talk with CCP back in those days. We didn't really interact with them that much. Yeah, it's definitely a different different time now that we have access to HipChat and the producer meetings and all that. <laughs> producer meetings, undreamt of. Uh, CCP and live chats, undreamt of at that time. Mm-hmm. Those are all, all conventions that happened after. Literally, like, the week-to-week of being on CSM was we got petitions from the player base and talked about them as a group and prioritized them in such a way that we would deliver them when we went to the summit. And then the summit happened, and the summits probably went much the same as they do now, except they weren't filmed. Uh, So there was a lot more table slamming and raised voices at the time. Um, Oh, man. CSM4 Summit was contentious, to say the least. (laughs) Yeah. FIFA would if you actually raising their voices. Fucking children, dude. It's not how you do business. It was. It's how you had to do business back in the day. Otherwise, they wouldn't listen to you. Um, but yeah, uh, one of the goon representatives, literally, like, because we had been trying to express this point that the devs were just not hearing us, and he got so frustrated, it literally started slamming his hand down two or three times, rattling everything. And, you know, eventually shit got changed and, you know, things things evolved and were different. Um, but, yeah, it took, took some doing it. I think people uh, today take for granted uh, the level of access and influence the CSM does have, which I think is considerable these days. Back in its earliest forms, it just wasn't even considered that we could even get this far. I guess it's also much more work, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah. CSM 7 was like a full-time job compared to CSM 4. Yeah, CSM... Uh, well, I've I've not been able to play much EVE because my exams have taken over the time where I would normally play EVE and the, like, 10 to 15 hours I can normally spend, I'm putting into the CSM. Gotta keep, you gotta stay on top of stuff, you know? CSM's important. It's a big responsibility. It is, and I think it's best served by people who view it as such and treat it as such which Ian has always done and I'm very thankful for that. That's why he is our official Declaration Support candidate. Oh my god, don't show me out too hard legs yet. <laughs> yeah, I've written quite a few articles on uh, on the principle of CSM uh, for Crossing Cybers and I've always defended it. Sometimes I felt like uh, as the lone person doing so. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for that dude. It's uh it's never an easy task to be defending the CSM because, you know, the CSM is an authority, I guess, a, a role of authority. And that means that you've got to take responsibility for your mistakes. And 
that can make you look like you know, weak sometimes or like you're ineffective. And I guess there is so much that is under NDA where you would love to tell people who are <laughs> bad-mouthing you, but hey, guy, we did X, uh, but you just can't say it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's super frustrating. I think I have two or three two or three big ones that I'd love to share at some point, but, you know, ask me in seven years, that kind of thing. Yeah, a couple of years after his uh, final term, he'll be able to talk about it. How long does that NDA cover you? Seven years and it refreshes every time they tell us something new. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I'm only just now, within the past two years, able to talk about stuff that I was in for. Yeah, they um, they strengthened it up a lot after um, CSM 10, basically. Because that makes people, sense. people was leaking and shit was getting out. So now if you break the NDA, they ain't using any lube, basically. No lube for you. Yep. So how do we resolve this, Tarek? You know, Seagull, like you said, she checks a lot of professional boxes. She put a very uh, positive face, literal face, on EVE and EVE development. Definitely made a lot of progress in terms of, I would say, quality process improvements. Certainly had a lot of really impactful expansions. The fact that she actually has a roadmap... You know, this is all super important stuff that, uh, <laughs> that like, just wasn't a thing. Uh, the fact that Eve, ha A, had a roadmap that looked beyond the next expansion, and B, that it was public to the, to the company, or to the community, even in general terms. All new things, I would say all good things, but also we see this decline in the game in terms of our population and sub-numbers and all that stuff. So how do we... Excuse me, how do we contextualize this and how do we resolve it? Yeah, that's, that's of course, uh, the question that I think CCP themselves would love to have an answer for because they they seem to be groping for something that brings it back. I mean, they have tried uh, the, the alpha accounts and indeed it created some spikes in newly created characters, but we we don't see concurrent player numbers going up and of course Eve is dealing with an aging population. I mean I started playing this game when I was, uh, let me think uh, yeah I, I was uh, I was finishing my studies at the time and uh, I basically just had all my exams done and was just working on my thesis so I have, uh, I had a lot of free time and I guess you were also much younger and much uh, freer with your uh, time management than you yeah. now and and that goes for a lot of eve players i know so many people who started as uh, students or or in school and now they have children so that is definitely something that keeps people from playing in in large numbers as they used to and if you don't get in new players in the same amount as as you once did then um yeah then this player population will be aging i do propose a few things in my upcoming article where I'm where I'm saying that I think Eve can need more immersion and more connection with the backstory and a more proactive development of the backstory because I have seen that this is very popular with players and that it motivates people to come in and check out the game. Yeah, that's a good transition to the next thing I wanted to talk about. You have an upcoming article which is basically about the importance and significance of Eve's lore 
And I really wanted to bring that into a discussion because I sort of don't think of that as a very important thing and really haven't for my EVE career. But you make uh, what I understand to be a very compelling case. So let's let's tie these things together. Talk about uh, talk about Eve lore. Talk about why you think it's so impactful for players and what doubling down on it might get CCP. So yeah, the where where it begins for me is is the thing which uh, which attracts new players and uh, and which gets them involved in the game in the first place. And I have looked at myself as an example. I have not read about the cool sci-fi world of EVE Online in a lore way. I have heard about it because of something that players did in a game, and that is something which, of course, a lot of others will have experienced as well. And I, I know that a lot of others have experienced and joined the game because of a media article about a massive battle or something like that. But once you are engaged in the beginning and you you enter the game and you don't have immediate friends, like let's, let's say you come from a community like the goons and uh, you know you will be joining them in the, in the game, of course, then uh, the first steps that you take will present you with choices that have everything to do with the game's uh, backstory and uh, and sci-fi world and nothing with all these grand battles and heists and capers and and that is something that real players in keeps them engaged in the beginning and if that is if that is falling short then i think the retention becomes a problem and that is the problem that Eve has. It's it's player retention. There are, if you look at the numbers, a lot of players who constantly try Eve. And they have also said that at FanFest, where they said like since Eve began, so and so many millions of people have tried it, but they don't stay. And one of the things that they did try to do was change the new player player experience to make it more immersive and uh, pull players into the lore of the game but unfortunately and this is this is so typical of ccp and it is it keeps frustrating me over the years because i love that game and i love the way what uh, they do things in in a general way but they often leave things dangling so you get pulled into this whole lore about drifters and and they are threatening our our empires and you are the rookie who is who is thrown into there and then you you save the day and then you come out of that, and and again you wonder, uh, so where is all that going on? And you don't get immersed into it. And I see that as a serious problem. If I, on the other hand, I, in my article, I'm using Games Workshop and Warhammer 40k as a counterexample, because they are extremely good at pushing their lore, and that kind of like pulls players in because it's like, ah, look how cool all this like weird history and and uh, and different races and units, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, that's a good example because I I can recall back when I started playing Warhammer and the lore was fascinating, like buying the Codex books. It was kind of required because you needed to know the stats for all your guys and you know what your unit compositions were and your options were. But the pictures, the stories, the histories, the character profiles, that was all an important part of it. It wasn't just you were getting charts and spreadsheets. Uh, and it was fascinating stuff that like really got you excited to play. So that that does make some sense to me. Yeah, the same goes. For example, if you look at uh, BattleTech or the or the later incarnations uh, in as computer games. Oh yeah. Where 
eventually something happened there which which happened at the beginning of the pen and paper role playing thing namely that they had a tactical game on one side and then they developed a role playing game based on the people who are driving around those battle mechs and that is how dungeons and dragons started dungeons and dragons started when war gamers were thinking up backstories about their characters and i mean i i know you are in the game uh, playing in a very pragmatic way you have you have so to say a job in the game you you run a mercenary group and, used, to. used to or or used to but uh, that doesn't need any backstory but but still uh, you gave your character a name which you probably think speaks for that character and um and i mean i would i would be surprised if you haven't thought at all about like how that character fits into that world or have you never you know i probably thought about it a little bit when i was making the character but i'll describe it like this with battletech the game was fine and you know you'd play it against people every once in a while most of the games were single-player experiences for me. I didn't really invest much in the multiplayers of Battletech, aside from multiplayer Battletech Solaris and its all-too-shortly-lived fantastic sequel. Um, and in that, you sort of contextualize yourself within the conflict of you're fighting for one empire against the other empires, and because you were familiar with Battletech, you probably had a favorite. For me, Battletech... The lore was everything. The books were way more exciting than any of the video games. The video games were a chance to, like, uh, realize myself within the story. And the story was the awesome part. And the best games added something to that story, where they gave you an insight uh, either into the culture and backstory of a particular faction, or took a hitherto undeveloped aspect of one of the conflicts and like inserted you in that role to more fully realize the wider scope of the story by focusing down on this one tiny bit like uh, mech commander if you're familiar with that you're an inner sphere guy going against the clans this is part of in the wider story the counter invasion where their inner sphere is finally trying to retake the planets that the clans took in the initial invasion and you're dropping in there the you know the planet's name the planet's name is very known within the books but the fighting on that planet is not really touched on it's just kind of hand wave that it happens but you get to actually participate in that campaign and like it it sort of deepens the wider story by focusing down on this one very small part and then totally immersing you in it yeah, for I eve when i joined I thought about my character, I thought about what I wanted him to do, and sort of maybe a little bit about what his background was, but when I started up the game, I wanted him to be a smuggler. And that's the character choices that I picked. Oh, except smuggling is broken, you can't actually do that. <laughs> so I was like, oh, well that sucks, what else is going on in this game? And it became really apparent to me that the real lore of Eve didn't actually have anything to do with the stuff that CCP was writing. It had everything to do with what the players were doing to each other. And to me, that was the history, and that was the lore that I wanted to immerse myself in, and that's what I became more attached to. Oh, indeed. And, and for quite some time, it was the same for me. 
like I said, I, I ended up doing all this uh, spying stuff, and uh, and for a long time, I was really deep into that, and I couldn't care less about anything about the evil or Although even in those days, I did read the chronicles. I did listen to people who were talking about uh, lore stuff on podcasts, because even if you are playing completely divorced from all of that, if you're a self-actualizing player, only doing like, I don't know, politics or spying or mercenary work or pure PvP, there are always things where you have to do, let's say, chores in EVE. You have to move stuff around, you have to set up things, you have to fuel things, etc., etc., scan down signatures, whatever. And in in those instances of idleness, I often found it quite interesting to, like, okay, let's see what is all this Eve world that I'm playing in actually all about, and uh, and I found it quite interesting and, and and funny to read and entertaining. And I think if you um, if you immerse players in your game world, even if they are not really playing with your game world but playing with each other. Uh, you win something by that in the in the same way how you describe it with the, with the battle tech thing like they they are writing a story and they're hand waving what is happening uh, but then players play out that interaction and um, the the way how nullsec or wormhole space in, in works has players doing their thing with each other against each other only but if you take all the other people who uh, who don't do that? Who are who are more involved uh, with I don't know, like small things, things that you start your player career with effectively, exploration, mining, missions, etc., etc. That kind of stuff is is what keeps you hooked until you have all these connections. Because I I see that with my girlfriend, she started playing. She she st- she joins the same corp or alliance that I am with. Uh, but she doesn't know all these like dozens of people for years. She has no uh, sort of uh, connections in the game. She has me and then some people I introduced her to. But as for the rest, she is she's really orienting herself on lore things. Like uh, she started playing Minmatar because she likes the Minmatar. And, uh, and she really likes to uh, immerse herself in what's going on there. And I think it's very important to keep players and, and pull them through that difficult first phase of the game. I can see that. I can see that. So what is the, the concrete step that you think CCP should take? What, is, what is, should be their takeaway if I'm the new Eve EP reading your article? Well, what I definitely think they should be doing is, uh, first of all, they should stop firing people who work on lore and backstory development and live events uh, and, instead, and instead hire a few new people. Because every time I go to FanFest, every time I talk to the people off CCP who are involved in this, uh, I see that it's all developers who do that next to their main job. They do that basically in their idle time or, I don't know, maybe they get 20% personal hobby project time or something like that and and that's where they do all that work because all the people who used to work on that uh, have been phased out of the company or left and i think they should be more proactive again because it's it's not only window dressing it's not only fluff it is also a marketing tool and i mean ccp are notoriously bad at that um, they they really don't have a very good uh, marketing for whatever reason but 
I think they should much more focus on that because in a in a time of of stagnating player numbers and uh, demonstrably bad player retention, uh, that might be one of the things that you are looking for as a solution, as a potential solution. I'm, I mean, I'm just speculating myself. Well, I will say it does have this virtue in that CCP has always struggled to connect new players with the larger sort of ongoing player narrative of the game. And of course, there are inherent questions of favoritism and and how would you possibly manage it even if they did. Whereas they don't have to worry about any of those problems if they're connecting players with their like ongoing uh, NPC storylines. So certainly conceptually much easier for CCP to do that. I do think you made a good point of... Um, the new immersive player experience, which I have played and have watched someone else play. It's definitely a major step up from what we've had before. But then you get done with it and it's like, well, okay, now what? What happened to all that stuff that I just did? Where are these drifters? How do I get back to fighting them if I wanted to? I don't really think that's clear. So there's definitely room to grow. I think it'd be conceptually simpler. I don't know that the new leaner CCP is going to do that. Although perhaps the 10 or 20% extra time that they're given to focus on writing projects, maybe that would be a helpful thing. Could there be other methods, though? Like, it feels a little cheap to do, but some kind of um, outsourcing of this kind of writing to player base. Maybe just have a a lore master type role within the company. And then... Yeah sort of outsource who can submit stories for that and they go over and edit and, and make any changes needed for continuity they do have that they uh, they have uh, the isd program and uh, as far as i know there is now a site called uh, volunteers.evonline.com or ccp.com i'm not sure <coughs> sorry one of the two and uh, those are the people who often write sort of like in-game news articles that, uh, like in-world news articles that come out. the The problem again there is that yeah, you read that, but then nothing really changes in the game world, as you might remember from things like Warhammer 40k BattleTech and and many other games. Like uh, many games have this sort of like world development meta plot and they justify new units new mechanics new uh, adjustments to the world with that and they use that as a they leverage that for selling books for selling new sets etc whatever they want to sell yeah yeah um and uh eve has like the the dynamics between the empires the the map of high sec low sec uh has not been changed in any way ever since um, they finished adding new systems and changing uh, bridges and stuff like that. Well, faction warfare. Well, faction warfare, yeah, okay, it's fun. I, I am in it because I like that system where I can just like undock in whatever and have like some quick PvP because I love that uh, these days. But the thing is, at the end of the day, it still stays all the same forever. I mean, okay, you have your PvP arena, but then what? And especially if faction warfare um, attracts 
uh, first of all, it attracts people who do like to roleplay. You do have like some roleplaying freaks uh, in uh, faction warfare, and also if you have something that you do in faction warfare and it it makes uh, it makes waves in the world, and you can see that back, because of course every everybody who is part of a large group in um, in Nullsec, they can see on the solve map like, hey, there we are. That's that's our land, that's our territory, whatever you want to call it. But uh, but in faction warfare, nothing changes about that really. And with citadels, it has become aggravated because now, like Galente militia, they don't even bother to defend systems because yeah, you just put a citadel there. Period. Well, that's a shame. Yeah, citadel is messing with, and it's also true with Saab as well. Um, and I think it's sort of unavoidable. Way those two systems interact, it's always going to be problems till CCP really sits down and and thinks about how the SOV system works in this new Citadel upwell structure environment. I don't think they've really reconciled the two, and I think faction warfare is suffering from that same problem. In in some in some way, that is of course also the way how ccp want to operate i think they they sometimes they and and i think a few of the developers have said that on stage sometimes they just want to put something into the game and see what happens and then uh, and then balance it later and that may be a good approach or not but um but i also like it in some way because every time something like that happens things get shaken up a bit like now, for example, because of uh, the, that change of the faction citadels, it's uh, uh, or faction outposts or whatever they are called, the change of the outposts into something new. Um, you see that for the first time, somebody is actually bothering to really invade Providence. Yeah, it's definitely been interesting. I think in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see a lot more conflict around that. At least I expect and hope so. Yeah, even a small irrelevant alliance like the one that I'm with, uh, Villora Accords, like even there, that's been, like the big thing. Like, oh yeah, we have the possibility to get one of those. So let's defend that system where we have that station that can be transformed if we hold it. And that, that is that is a nice motivator for for people to come together and form fleets. How that turns out in the long run is a completely different question. <laughs> Well, it's just one of those things we're going to have to kind of wait and see. Uh, let's transition to some host highlights, uh, kind of wrap up this show. We want to talk about the stuff that's going on with the DRF and Try and InSmother, but uh, Yin had to go. He's got a lot of information on that, so we're going to save that topic for the next show and bring Yin in here to, uh, to do his spiel, but definitely a lot of interesting stuff going on in the South and the Southeast. Uh, for my own part, I got to do an interview for EVE Alliance Tournament Commentator yesterday. I was on um, like a video call with Elise, Bay, Nash. It was quite fun. Um, definitely way different than the previous interview that I did for that a couple of years back. I uh, hope that I did well. We'll see. <laughs> so but uh, it was a privilege to, you know, just like flying in the tournament, I think it's a privilege to be considered. And, uh, you know, I've only ever been called up to the interview round once before. So this is definitely a big step. And fingers crossed, I would love to do play-by-play for the Alliance Tournament. It's one of those things that's kind of been on my EVE bucket list for a little while now. And uh, fingers crossed, guys. 
Yeah, I, I mean, as far as I know you, you are you are quite into all the different ship mechanics. I think you could be a quite good commentator for that. I love them. <laughs> it's and doing play by play is tons of fun um, for Eve for League, all that stuff. Uh, the only esports event for Eve that I really called before was the New Eden Grand Prix a while back. And that was tons of fun, but it was also in like 2014. <laughs> kind of really want to do another one, but uh, requires more help than I have available in my current corp. Perhaps someday. Speaking of which, capitalist arming, definitely recruiting. Please join capitalist chat in-game for more info. So when you said you were interviewed by a few people, I didn't hear a single CCP person there. So it's only the even T people and their crowd who have been interviewing you. Uh, the way it was explained to me is that they're interviewing everyone and making recommendations to CCP, and then CCP will make the final decisions. I see, I see. But this year, the EVNT is really running the majority of the production around the tournament, so all the streams, the commentary, all that kind of stuff has sort of been outsourced by CCP to them. CCP will pretty much just handle the in-game tournament stuff, like spawning everyone where they need to be, making sure they're in the right ships, handling the boundary violations, things like that. Yeah, I am I am convinced that they will do a pretty good job of that because I have been um a hanger on in in their whole tournament thing since it pretty much started and um and they have gained a lot of experience that they were quite good at it from the get-go. I mean, uh, Nash is, uh, I think he's working as some sort of media producer, at least he was working in this media center in uh, Nottingham, where the first events were taking place. So he's, he's quite on the job with all of that. Yeah, and I made a comment on the show at the time, like, if you had told me that things were reversed and that EventT um, had done, like, the finals presentation and CCP had done the early parts... I wouldn't be shocked. Like, Eve NT basically did CCP level production, but even better. I, I like their setup better, I like their graphics better than the actual finals presentation that CCP did the one year that they did duos. So, this time around, I'm very, very confident that they're going to do a fantastic job. Yeah, what I what I also like is the fact that because they are Eve players, because they are also like tournament players themselves. Many of the people who are participating, they have the right uh, sort of like sense of humor and sense of presentation, and they they know all the all the memes and in jokes. Where sometimes when you have people from CCP sitting there doing the presentation, they come across as a bit wooden because sometimes they don't really know all the little jokes that are going on there and uh, and the sort of like player jargon. I mean, even the, the, like I said, the commentary interview was a much, I would say, much better. more Definitely more structured and, I would say, more rigorous. The previous time that I did it, it was more just kind of a, uh, like, a casual chat, really, than anything else. So they asked a few questions, but not a lot of detail. This time around, I was being run through exercises, and there was, like, live commentary test. Like, it was kind of a... A very organized, very like kind of high pressure thing relative to the other one. So I I would have to assume that yields a better commentator at the end of it, just in terms of a process. Yeah, I'm uh, 
I'm also, yeah, I'm, I'm quite positively uh, impressed also with uh, with the level of professionalism that they have. And uh, when, uh, for example, at um, at FanFest, they they did a live tournament throughout the days, and they were like really spot on and always on time and everything. I mean, of course, there there were like hiccups in their tech once or twice or so, but uh, in generally in general, they were like production wise really spot on, and that was really time sensitive because all the matches were timed in such a way that they would have to fit into the day and the tournament would have to be finished at the right time, etc., etc. And then you have to coordinate with all the presentations where people want to go to. So they, they really did a, did a good job, just simply production-wise. Uh, what is your host highlight, Tarek? Yeah, so my host highlight, if you want to call that, is... Uh, well, to begin with, I have returned to active playing and active writing since FanFest, effectively, because I have been for um, for a, on a hiatus for about a year. In fact, when I when I recently uh, got uh, got a kill, I checked my kill list and realized that the last one of my kills was exactly one day and a few hours, uh, one year and a few hours <laughs> ago. So that shows uh, how much activity I've had in the game. And um, when I came back. I came back to a vastly changed uh, Galente Militia. Like now, the Galente Militia has um, spread out into pure blind, and a few of our uh, alliances have taken solve there. And I have been in that process of defending it. We have the salt farmers right next to us, and uh, the salt farmers. Uh, have been hitting us a few times. I can't tell you too much about what uh, we are doing because there are a few cunning plans going on. Um, and because we are also ha um, in cooperation with uh, two wormhole alliances, which I also shouted out, so Tar Dark Space Initiative and the Fox Solars. And uh, yeah, that, that leads to all kinds of like funny shenanigans with uh, uh, connections and people entering from... Uh, unexpected angles as you can imagine yeah for sure awesome well that's it guys head to declarationsofwar.com to participate in the show's poll leave a comment on the episode if you like once again capitalist army is recruiting and we can use a few good capitalists join capitalist space chat in game for more info wherever you are good hunting listeners <laughs>